On August 18, 1996, the San Jose Mercury News, a small newspaper in Northern California, published the first of three articles by Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter Gary Webb. This article, titled America's Crack Plague Has Roots in Nicaragua War, began to unravel a vast conspiracy of the American government's complicity in the crack explosion of the 1980s, an epidemic that gutted black communities in hundreds of cities across the country. Over the next two days, the paper printed the second and third parts, which exposed in great detail the complicated web of drug dealers, far-right rebels, CIA agents, and street gangs. These three articles, collectively referred to as the Dark Alliance series, quickly shot to national prominence. It was one of the first major news stories to take advantage of the internet. The San Jose Mercury News hosted the series on its own website, linked in the description, that contained in-text links to the extensive credible documentation Webb used to write the story. He figured that it had such a baked-in unbelievability that the only way to be believed was to include the evidence itself. The strategy worked, and soon Webb's reporting went 90s viral, with the website seeing a million visits per day. It was discussed extensively on talk radio, especially on black stations, which recognized Webb's story as proof of something they long believed to be true. Articles began popping up supporting Webb's conclusions, and the CIA found itself in a crisis. Then the hammer came down, and a ruthless campaign by legacy papers designed to discredit Webb's reporting, as well as destroy the man himself, quickly dominated the headlines, successfully reversing the course of public opinion in about a month and a half. Webb was eventually abandoned by his editors, and what follows next is tragedy. Today, I'd like to talk about the CIA's involvement in the crack trade, Gary Webb's dark alliance, the media response, and the aftermath. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 122, Dark Alliance. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. I suppose this would be a good time to talk about what's actually in these articles and meet the characters of this story. Article 1 begins as follows. For the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Blood street gangs of Los Angeles and funneled millions in drug profits to a Latin American guerrilla army run by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, a Mercury News investigation has found. This drug network opened the first pipeline between Colombia's cocaine cartels and the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles, a city now known as the crack capital of the world. The cocaine that flooded in helped spark a crack explosion in urban America, which provided the cash and connections needed for LA's gangs to buy automatic weapons. The Army's financiers, who met with CIA agents both before and during the time they were selling the drugs in LA, delivered cut-rate cocaine to the gangs through a young South Central crack dealer named Ricky Donald Ross. Unaware of his supplier's military and political connections, Freeway Rick, a dope dealer of mythic proportions in the L.A. drug world, turned the cocaine powder into crack and wholesaled it to gangs across the country. The cash Ross paid for the cocaine, court records show, was then used to buy weapons and equipment for a guerrilla army named the Fuerza Democrática Nicaragüense, or FDN, the largest of several anti-communist groups commonly called the Contras. So, already in that introduction, we have a basic framework of what's happening here. 
The Contras, with CIA knowledge, are smuggling cocaine from Colombia into America. It's delivered to a man named Norwin Manessis, who distributes it through a middleman, Danilo Blandon, who then sells it to Freeway Rick Ross, then one of the country's most powerful drug dealers. While Ross turns the cocaine into crack that goes on to destroy communities across the country, the profits are funneled back to Nicaragua, where it's used to buy weapons and equipment for the anti-communist Contras, who are also funded by the CIA. Webb frames this story by talking about the three major players I just mentioned, Rick Ross, Norwin Manessis Cantarero, and Danilo Blandon. Let's go into detail about who these guys are. Freeway Rick Ross was born in 1960 in south-central LA, then one of the poorest places in the country. In high school, he showed a talent for tennis, and though he could neither read nor write, he hoped that he could escape poverty by attending college on an athletic scholarship, a dream that evaporated when his coaches learned of his illiteracy. He dropped out of high school and went to a local technical school to learn how to bind books, supporting himself by stealing car parts on the side. Eventually, he was arrested and forced to leave school. It was in 1979 that he saw cocaine for the first time, brought by a friend who was home from college. Initially, he said, he didn't believe it was a real drug. In the late 1970s, cocaine was virtually impossible to find in a place like South Central Los Angeles. In 1979, the DEA pegged the price of cocaine at $5,200 an ounce, which is $19,800 in 2021. It was still a drug for the rich, and understandably, Ross had only ever vaguely heard of it. Through a friend, he made contact with a dealer who would sell him incredibly cheap and incredibly pure cocaine, and Ross began to establish a distribution network and client base among the gangs of LA. Eventually, his dealer introduced him to his dealer, Danilo Blandon, which is as good a time as any to talk about him. Danilo Blandon claims that he became a drug dealer out of patriotism. In the summer of 1979, when the socialist Sandinista rebels overthrew the U.S.-backed Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza, the incoming government stripped the wealthy of their ill-gotten gains, and Blandon, son of a very rich slumlord, fled to Los Angeles. As soon as he had left, he began to plot his triumphant return, working with other exiles to revive Somoza's army so that they might take back their land and fortunes. Blandon claims that the traditional means of fundraising were not bearing fruit, and that it was purely for patriotic reasons, to fund a reactionary counter-revolution, that he began to traffic cocaine. It was in his introduction to the cocaine trade that he met Juan Norwin Manessas Condorero, who I'll talk about in just a second. Together, the two went to meet Colonel Enrique Bermudez, who was the former American military liaison for the Somoza government, as well as the man tasked by the CIA with running the Contras. Bermudez would be directly on the CIA payroll for a decade. Norwin Manessis gave Blandon a crash course in cocaine trafficking and sent him back to L.A., where, after a few months of struggling to establish a customer base, he met Freeway Rick and his business exploded. Now, before I get too deep into the relationship between these two, I should talk about Norwin Manessis. Manessis was a powerful Nicaraguan cocaine smuggler known openly in his home country as the King of Drugs. He became even more widely known, even more infamous, in 1977, when a government minister was gunned down on the street while investigating a crime ring supposedly headed by Manessis. 
Worry not, because the police, headed by his brother Eduardo, cleared him of any wrongdoing. Even though there was extensive, well-documented evidence that he was a powerful drug lord, the U.S. government accepted him as a political refugee, granting him a visa in July 1979, just as the Somoza government was collapsing. Manassas relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area, where he quickly set up a drug trafficking ring, using his contacts to smuggle in tons of cocaine carried along Contra supply lines from Colombia. Soon, he too met with Colonel Bermudez, the CIA line item and leader of the Contras, who made Manessas the head of intelligence and security for the FDN in California. Now that he was working with the Contras, for the CIA, he could operate with impunity. Reading again from Dark Alliance, Manessas, who ran the drug ring from his homes in the San Francisco Bay Area, is listed in the DEA's computers as a major international drug smuggler and was implicated in 45 separate federal investigations. Yet he and his cocaine-dealing relatives lived quite openly in the Bay Area for years, buying homes in Pacifica and Burlingame, along with bars, restaurants, car lots, and factories in San Francisco, Hayward, and Oakland. I even drove my own cars, registered in my name, Manessas said during a recent interview in Nicaragua. Manessas' organization was, quote, the target of unsuccessful investigative attempts for many years, Prosecutor O'Neill acknowledged in a 1994 affidavit, but records and interviews revealed that a number of those probes were stymied not by the elusive Manessas, but by agencies of the U.S. government. Agents from four organizations, the DEA, U.S. Customs, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and the California Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, have complained that investigations were hampered by the CIA or unnamed national security interests. That quote does a great job of showing the efficacy and totality of his protection, which is even more galling considering the sheer scale of his operation. We will, of course, never know exactly how much cocaine we're dealing with, but Blandon, Manassas' main customer, estimated in 1990 on a wiretap that he had sold between two to four thousand kilos of cocaine, equivalent to between two to four metric tons. The majority of this was sold to Freeway Rick Ross, who, starting in the early 80s, transformed it into crack rocks, which could be sold for cheap on the street. It's hard to overstate how much crack changed the world of drug dealing and the people that it targeted. It provided a high that was far, far greater than powder cocaine and was available for extremely cheap. Cocaine was $5,200 an ounce. Crack was $20 per hit. At the height of his drug empire in 1983, Blandon sold Ross 100 kilos of cocaine per week. Adjusted for inflation and depending on the going price of the kilo, that's between $114 million and $229 million of cocaine per year. Most, if not all of it, was transformed into crack rocks for distribution not just in Los Angeles, where the Crips and the Bloods were the primary buyers, but across the country. Freeway Rick's direct supply chains reached as far as Ohio. At the height of the crack epidemic, which he himself had caused, Ross claimed that it was not uncommon to sell two to three million dollars worth of crack in a single day. Ross ruthlessly expanded his empire thanks to the cut rate prices made possible only by CIA protection of the cocaine trade. 
He effortlessly muscled in on the competition thanks to his ability to endlessly undercut anyone's prices. Chico Brown, a former crack dealer and customer of Freeway Rick, had this to say about his business practices. It didn't make no difference to Rick what anyone else was selling it for. Rick could just go in and undercut him by $10,000 a key. Say some dude was selling it for 30. Boom. Rick would go in and sell it for 20. If he was selling it for 20, Rick would sell it for 10. Sometimes he'd be giving it away. Now, We'll get into this in a little bit when I talk about the media response to the Dark Alliance series, but one of the claims that legacy papers made was that Webb didn't create an incontrovertible link between the CIA and the crack trade. Of course, at no point does Webb directly say the CIA was involved with and knew about drug trafficking, probably because that would have lost him his job faster than he already did, but the proof is right there for those willing to actually engage with the evidence, one of the most salient pieces being Ross's continual ability to sell cocaine at what should have been a loss. One of the main reasons that cocaine was so expensive in the late 70s was because it was extremely costly to smuggle at scale. This massive obstacle for other dealers wasn't a problem for Ross, because he got his cocaine from protected sources on the CIA payroll, and they could do their smuggling in plain sight. Allegedly, at least once, planes from the Salvadorian Air Force were used to directly fly shipments of cocaine to an Air Force base in Texas. To underscore the importance of the CIA middlemen to the drug trade, here's a quote from Rick Ross, from whom the current rapper stole his name, on his partner and supplier Danilo Blandon. I'm not saying I wouldn't have been a dope dealer without Danilo, but I wouldn't have been Freeway Rick. Thanks to this vast pipeline of cheap drugs, Ross established an empire. The prosecutors who would later send him to prison estimated that between 1982 and 1989, Ross sold three metric tons of cocaine, in line with Blandon's 1990 figure. Adjusted for inflation, that's $3.02 billion worth of cocaine, approximately a third of that being pure profit. With his newfound riches, Ross began buying up properties along LA's Harbor Freeway, thus earning him the nickname. But this high couldn't last forever. You see, on December 1st, 1981, Reagan authorized the CIA to begin arming and training the Contra Army, but only gave them a budget of $19 million. Blandon would later testify that, knowing it would not be enough to fund a successful counter-revolution, they invested it in cocaine. Well, in 1986, the Congress voted to give the Contras $100 million in direct military aid, equivalent to about $250 million today. With the federal spigot turned on, the CIA found it had no more need for an international cocaine ring, and the immunity that had protected them for a decade began to disappear. That October, the L.A. Sheriff, FBI, and IRS conducted simultaneous raids across all of Danilo Blandon's properties, all of which had been surreptitiously cleaned of incriminating evidence. It was clear that someone had tipped him off. Blandon and his family were arrested, but they had nothing to prosecute them with, so they were all released. In 1987, after Ross had already distributed tons of cocaine, the LAPD finally decided to form a task force to apprehend him. 
Even then, it was a couple of months before they even knew what he looked like. Understandably, that same year, both Blandon and Ross left LA, relocating to Miami and Cincinnati respectively. In Ohio, Ross intended to live quietly, but was tempted by the almost untouched crack market. He ended up creating a distribution network that went as far as St. Louis. That all came to an abrupt halt the next year in 1989, when one of his shipments was intercepted by the federal government and traced back to him. He pleaded guilty to charges of drug trafficking and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. At the same time, Blandon was going bankrupt in Miami. His various business ventures had failed, and he decided that the only remaining option would be to return to California and sell cocaine. He did, but this time he was constantly hounded by the police. Between 1990 and 91, he sold approximately $54 million worth of cocaine. He was arrested in 1991 when the LAPD found cocaine in his pocket, along with $14,000. The Justice Department intervened and had them drop the case. But shortly after that, Blandon and his wife were arrested by DEA agents. Prosecutors claimed that he had sold so much cocaine that his sentencing should be, quote, off the charts. The recommended sentence was life in prison plus a $4 million fine. The federal government, however, had different plans. They argued that he should be sentenced to no more than two years in prison with no fine, as he was, quote, extraordinarily valuable in major DEA investigations of Class I drug traffickers. The court agreed, and he was sentenced along those terms. Less than a year later, the government returned to the table, saying that, since he would be working for the government when he got out anyway, wouldn't it just make more sense to let him go now? The court agreed, and Blendon was out of prison, now a handsomely paid federal informant. The U.S. government would go on to pay him over $280,000 for his services. Meanwhile, the government approached Freeway Rick in prison. There was a massive scandal sweeping the LAPD Narcotics Division. Rampant physical abuse, planting of evidence, stealing drugs. If Ross could testify, his sentence would be shortened. He agreed and have five years reduced from his sentence, receiving parole in 1994. When Blandon turned informant the same year, his first job was setting up what's called a reverse sting on his old friend Freeway Rick, ostensibly as retaliation for testifying against the LAPD. A reverse sting is when the government sets up the deal and provides the drugs. The target merely brings the money. Ross was attempting to lead a legitimate life. He had taught himself to read in prison devouring self-help books that made him leave prison looking to lead a new life. Blandon contacted him and asked if Ross wanted to buy a shipment of cocaine. Ross repeatedly said no, that not only did he not want it, but he couldn't afford it. He was completely broke. Blandon begged, and reluctantly, Ross agreed to help him find a buyer for it. The trap was set. On March 2nd, 1995, the deal went down in a San Diego parking lot, and when Ross went over to inspect the cocaine provided by the federal government, cops poured out of the woodwork. Ross attempted to drive away and find, quote, a wall that I could crash myself into, but was eventually caught, and since this was his third strike, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. For this, Blandon was paid $45,000.
While in prison, Ross methodically read through all the law books in the library, eventually realizing that two of his three strikes had come from the same crime, and therefore he should technically only have two. Ross eventually brought this to the court, which agreed and reduced his life sentence to 20 years, of which he served 14, being paroled in 2009. In 1991, Norwin Mensis was arrested by Nicaraguan authorities along with 764 kilos of cocaine that was in the process of being shipped to America. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison, but was paroled after five. Danilo Blandon splits his time between Southern California and Nicaragua, having grown even more wealthy thanks to his connections and the patronage of the U.S. government. At his DEA trial, Blandon's lawyer, Bradley Brunan, said of his connections, Was he involved with the CIA? Probably. Was he involved with drugs? Most definitely. Were these two things involved with each other? They've never said that, obviously. They've never admitted to that. But I don't know where these guys get these big aircraft. So that is, essentially, the story of Dark Alliance, all of it pretty easily verifiable by government documents and records. So let's talk about the media reaction. As I mentioned earlier, the story initially saw immense popularity and correctly received great acclaim for the quality of its reporting. But the tide was changed by a concerted effort from legacy newspapers, the LA Times in particular, along with the New York Times and the Washington Post, devoted teams of journalists to picking apart and attempting to poke holes in Webb's reporting. At the LA Times, the squad of 17 reporters was known as the Git Gary Webb Team. Rather than engage with the body of the story, which stands alone as easily provable fact, the major papers devoted tens of thousands of words to attempting to smear both the story and Webb himself. They had ample assistance from the CIA, who sprinkled these stories with quotes from anonymous government sources. Indeed, the CIA broke its long-standing policy of not commenting on the agency affiliation of any individual by lying to these papers and saying that all the figures mentioned in Dark Alliance had no CIA affiliation, which is exactly what I would say if I was caught facilitating an international drug smuggling ring. The CIA, of course, investigated itself and found that it had not done anything wrong, which eager reporters from major papers devoured with glee. This smear campaign succeeded, and the San Jose Mercury News began to distance itself from Webb, eventually caving to the pressure and publishing a front-page letter from the editor essentially disowning Webb and the series, apologizing for the way the articles were, quote, handled. They then transferred Webb to an office 140 miles away from where he lived, and he resigned in protest. He would later develop the Dark Alliance series into a fully fleshed-out book of the same name, but besides this, he found that all his writing opportunities had dried up, and he had effectively been blacklisted from every newspaper in the country. Speaking on the subject, Webb said, Prior to Dark Alliance, I was winning awards, getting raises, lecturing college classes, appearing on TV shows, and judging journalism contests. And then I wrote some stories that made me realize how sadly misplaced my bliss had been. 
The reason I'd enjoyed such smooth sailing for so long hadn't been, as I assumed, because I was careful and diligent and good at my job. The truth was that, in all those years, I hadn't written anything important enough to suppress. Now unemployable, Webb's clinical depression grew worse and worse. He began abusing and mixing medications, driving recklessly, getting into multiple motorcycle accidents, leading to his ex-wife Susan Bell to say he had a death wish. Over the course of 2004, Gary Webb slowly planned for his eventual death, making Susan the beneficiary of his bank accounts, transferring the titles of his motorcycle to his son, making arrangements for his cremation, and selling his house. On December 9th, 2004, Gary Webb finished the last of his arrangements and taped a note to his bedroom door for the movers who were coming the following morning. Please do not enter. Call 911 for assistance. Thank you. With that, he closed the door, went inside, and shot himself twice in the head with a 38 caliber revolver. The fact that he was shot in the head twice has given rise to a number of theories that he was assassinated by the CIA. But even though, yes, the CIA definitely does murder journalists, the evidence, I think, overwhelmingly points to that not being the case here. Not only do we have Webb's own careful planning of his own death, but the coroner's report confirms that the first bullet was non-fatal, passing through his face and out his left cheek. In the years since Webb's death, further reporting has vindicated his original work, though some still blindly regard it as some crazed conspiracy theory. Once again, it seems that fact is more unbelievable than fiction. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.